Please open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, This morning we continue our study of the book of Hebrews in a message I've entitled, The Discipline Required to Run the Race, with our focal passage being Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Let's begin by reading the verses, and let's actually begin reading at verse 1 uh, to see the larger uh, context. So Hebrews 12, I'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse uh, 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and let me just pause right there. Who is that referring to? You should know from previous messages. Right, the heroes of faith uh, recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, the previous chapter. And these heroes of faith, they are testifying, they are witnessing to you and I today that what God did for them, He can do for us. And that as they ran their race and were faithful and crossed the finish line winners, we can as well. And He says, let us lay aside every encumbrance or weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us like they did in Hebrews 11, now let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, all of which have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, And we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, those earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be sorrowful, but to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Look at the introduction in your sermon notes, which sort of summarizes the primary or the key truth uh, found in our verses for today. The Hebrew Christians were encountering persecution for their faith and were in danger of compromise and retreat to escape suffering. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, they were exhorted to run the Christian race with endurance. 
no matter the obstacles, by keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus and remaining faithful to him until they cross the finish line. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, emphasizes how God uses suffering inflicted on Christians by those hostile towards God as disciplinary training to produce spiritual maturity. We find great comfort in the fact that God's enemies can never frustrate God's purpose and God's love for His children. Now, going back to our reading of verses 4 through our 11, our focal passage today, did you notice what is the key word? It's used nine different times in those verses. Did you pick it up? What's the word? Anybody. Discipline, that's right, discipline. In verses 4 through 11, the word discipline is used nine different times. In the Greek text, the word is padea, which comes from the word pace, meaning child. And it denotes the training of a child. That's what the word discipline means. It's used nine different times in this passage. It refers to the discipline or the training of a child. And it is a very broad term. It, it includes everything that a parent would do to educate, to train, and correct their child in order for their child to develop and mature as they ought. Therefore, God, as our disciplinarian, uh, that, the, that fact is based on what? A parent-child relationship. And God's goal is what? The development of His child. That we would develop maturity, that we would develop Christ-like character. And this involves what? Change. And that's where the rub comes in. We do not like change. We resist change. Uh, left to ourselves, let's just be honest, if we were just totally left to ourselves without God's disciplinary training, we would be content to live self-centered lives. We would never reach the heights of Christian maturity and Christ-like character that God intends for us to achieve. So follow now in your notes, and I want to just take a very simple approach to this passage. We're going to ask seven questions about God's discipline, uh, which are all answered in our passage uh, for today. And, and uh, we're actually not finished this message today. I'm actually going to just look at the first two questions, and then next week we'll pick up on the third. So that first question, very fundamental question, well, why? According to this passage, why do I need God's discipline. Why do I need His education? Why do I need His training and instruction? Why do I need His correction? Well, the answer is to become spiritually fit. To become spiritually fit so I can run and win the race. To become spiritually fit. That's the primary reason I need God's disciplinary training. To be spiritually fit so I can run and win the race. Look at verse 4 again. It says, You have not resisted the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now circle that word striving. In the Greek text, it's the word antagonizome, from which we get our word antagonism. It refers to suffering brought about 
by external persecution. It's the sinful things done to Christians to terrorize us from following Christ. And verse 4 is actually a reproach to these Hebrew believers and their soft faith. Remember, we have seen in previous messages, they were struggling with running the race with endurance. They were tempted to drop out of the race. They were discouraged and fearful. They were struggling with the cost of following Christ in a society that was hostile towards their Christian faith. The writer is gently bringing to their attention that though they had suffered persecution, and they had, I mean, some of them had lost property, some of them had lost possessions, and some of them had even suffered imprisonment. But despite that, they had not resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, they had not resisted to the point of death like Jesus and like some of the heroes of faith in chapter 11 who made the ultimate sacrifice for the cause of God. The writer, in essence, is saying, this is not a time for discouragement. This is not a time for fear. This is not a time for retreat. Look at the example of Jesus. Look at the example of the heroes of faith in chapter 11 who remain faithful to God in the midst of far greater hardships even to the point of death. Cut the melodrama. I don't see any bodies laying around. That's exactly what he's communicating. And beloved, this is a message that is very relevant right now to the church in America today. Hostility towards Christianity is increasing, and it is going to get worse. And persecution will intensify. But none of us, none of us have resisted to the point of martyrdom, like many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Where is the faith of the apostles? Who after a severe beating for simply sharing Christ, we we're told in Acts 5 verse 41 they, that they went out rejoicing. Why rejoicing? That they had been considered worthy, worthy for what? To suffer shame for the name of Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians Chapter 1, verse 29. For to you, speaking to the church of Philippi, who are under great persecution, he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. You've had this, this privilege given to you, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. Have we forgotten the words of our master? The one who we were exhorted to fix our eyes on, he said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. You say, Pastor Andy, my faith is not there yet. Thus, the need for God's disciplinary training. See, God wants 
to take your flabby, weak faith and develop it to a level of spiritual fitness where you not only run the race with endurance, but you cross the finish line a winner. And let's remind ourselves what it means to win the Christian race. And we looked at this in a previous message. It means fundamentally three things. It means, number one, that as I live my Christian life here on earth, I am becoming more and more like my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm developing His perspective on life. I'm developing His values. I'm developing His character. And that character is reflected in my conduct. I am being conformed into the image of Christ, made like Jesus. And then the second thing that winning means is that as I'm made like Jesus, as He's being formed in me, then Jesus is displayed through me that others might be drawn to Christ. So I, to win means becoming more like Jesus in order to win others to Christ. And then the third thing, that I cross the finish line maintaining my faith in God. Seeing my faith being strengthened and encouraged along the way. Now how does God develop winners? How does He do it? Through weight training, resistance training, and endurance training. He will lay on you the heavy weights of burdens and trials to build your spiritual muscles. He will allow your faith to be attacked. He will allow your faith to be resisted in order not only to strengthen your faith, but to put your faith on display that others might see Jesus in you and be drawn to Christ. He will put you in situations where you think you have come to the end of your ability to endure it any longer. And he only does that to push you to greater endurance. Folks, there is not a winning athlete worth a plug nickel that was not pushed by a coach beyond what they thought they could endure and achieve. You know, many of you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but many of you know that through my high school years and in the college, I was a standout athlete. And from many coaches, I learned the price that had to be paid for excellence. Folks, if I were to tell you everything some of my coaches did to me over the years, you would think it's abuse. But those coaches loved me, and they were committed to my excellence. They were committing, committed to me winning. And so they took me through drills, and they took me through conditioning, and they took me through training. And there were times when I hated those coaches. I mean, if I would have, you know, if they had turned my back on, on me very long, if I would have had a gun, I would have been tempted. But now I look back and I respect some of those men more than any other men in my life because of what they taught me, what they instilled within me. I mean, you soldiers, think about the training you go through. It's not pleasant, is it? And those drill instructors, they don't take you through that to destroy you but they're preparing you. They're preparing you for battle. 
They're preparing you to win the battle. And yes, the process is tough and it's painful and it's hard. But in the end, it's what? Worth the price. Now listen, beloved, in the same way, in the same way that a coach pushes an athlete, in the same way that a drill instructor will push those trainees, God will push you. And he's going to push you way beyond what you think you can ever endure or achieve. And yes, the process is painful. It is very painful. But again, the results are worth it. What does James say? Consider it. Count it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, when you're burdened by the weights of life's adversities, when you're attacked, when your faith is resisted, when you've come to the end of your, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now let's be honest. Left to ourselves, we would become couch potato Christians. At the very best, maybe recreational runners. Uh, you and I, are you willing to admit this? You and I need God's discipline. We need God's education. We need God's training, no matter how rigorous it may become. We need God's correction, His chastening at times to become spiritually fit, to be able to run the race and to become champions of faith, to become champions for Christ. And there's a second reason. There is a second reason we need God's discipline, which is closely related to the first. Yes, to become spiritually fit, but also to learn to follow the coach's instructions. To learn to follow the coach's instructions. Hebrews 12, verse 5, that very first phrase, and you, again, another reproach to these Hebrew believers, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now, folks, it is obvious, now listen, it, if God's goal, if His goal is to bring you to a level of spiritual fitness that you could never imagine possible, and that is His goal, it's, it's only going to happen if you follow the coach's instructions. And praise him, he's written down his instructions where? Right here. In a book. For us to read, study, and practice. So how can any believer, how can any believer expect to run and win the race if he does not know and practice the coach's instructions? Now don't miss this. At the very root of the Hebrew believer's faith crisis was not the persecution and adversity they were facing. Now, that's the excuse they gave. They said, in light of the persecution, in light of the pain, in light of the hostility, you know, they were struggling with the cost of following Christ. They were in danger of, of retreat and abandoning their faith. 
But let me tell you, it wasn't the persecution and adversity that was the real problem. The real problem was their neglect of God's Word. And it is the same for you and me today. The issue, the real issue, is not what is happening to us, what is happening to you, but how we are responding and relating to God's Word, which is clearly seen in the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, we have looked at these previously, but it was near the beginning of the study, and as we've walked through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, we've already had the opportunity to examine uh, four of these warnings. But let's just uh, remind ourselves of these five warnings that all relate to not following the coach's instructions and the consequences that are brought about as a result of that. And the first warning, just follow in your Bibles, the first, the first warning is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. And the warning is against drifting from God's Word, drifting from God's Word. This is where it begins. This is where the, the, the downward decline, the regression begins with every believer. Chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason... We must pay much, notice, closer attention to what we have heard, referring to God's Word, lest we drift away from it. And then what's the second warning? The first, drifting from God's Word. Then the second warning found in the book is doubting God's Word, which is in chapters 3 and 4. Let's just get a sampling of this. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7 uh, through verse 12. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they will always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And of course, he's talking about the children of Israel who were delivered out of Egypt. God desired to take them into the promised land, into Canaan. But because of them doubting God's word, because of their unbelief, they never experienced the promised land, that generation. They never experienced the full blessing that God intended for them. And they went to their graves with regret because they missed the opportunity that God had given them. He stayed true in His love towards them and providing them, protecting them, but they never knew what God had ideally intended for them. And then verse 12, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. And then the third warning is found in chapter 5. And it's a warning about becoming dull towards God's Word, dullness towards God's Word. Look at verse 11. He says, concerning him, he's been talking about Melchizedek, the high priest. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain to these Hebrew believers? Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who, pra- who, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. See, they had developed a dullness towards God's word, which sent them into spiritual regression. They actually went backwards. They should have been teachers, but they regressed, and now they were babies again in their faith, immature. And then the fourth warning relates to disobeying God's word. Disobeying God's word. Look at chapter 10. Look at verse 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Now again, we looked at this passage. And you need to understand, it's not talking about losing your salvation. It's saying as a believer, if you willfully choose to walk in sin, there are only two options for you. You either turn to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to know God's mercy and forgiveness and restoration, or you're going to experience God's chastisement, His severe judgment. So if you turn from that sacrifice, if you turn from seeking God's mercy, you're just walking right into God's disciplining hand. And then the last warning is in chapter 12, the chapter we're presently in, but later in the chapter, verse 25, and it's about defying God's Word, defying God's Word. Verse 20 says, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. So those are the five warnings, drifting from God's Word, doubting God's Word, dullness towards God's Word, disobeying God's Word, and then defying God's Word. And do not miss the progression in these five warnings. This is very instructive. If you do not, listen to me now, as a believer, if you do not deliberately and aggressively seek to know God's Word and submit to practice God's Word. You will drift from it. Period. You will. You must deliberately, intentionally, aggressively give yourself to not only know, but to put into practice, to apply God's Word. And as you drift from and neglect God's Word, you know where that will lead? It will lead to doubting God's Word. Why? Because faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And what does this produce? It produces a heart hard of hearing. You become a lazy listener. Yeah, you're sitting in church. Yeah, you may be in Sunday school. You may even come on Wednesday night or Sunday night. But you're a hearer of God's Word and not a doer of God's Word. And this dullness towards God's Word will inevitably lead to deceit. It will lead to willful disobedience. And if that is left unchecked, it will develop into full-blown defiance of God's Word. Now, what does God do as this spiritual regression is taking place? He continues to speak, encouraging us, imploring us, 
to get back to God's Word. To make it the central thing in our lives. To not be here but a doer. To build our lives on the rock of God's Word. To know stability. To be able to stand for Christ no matter the circumstances. Now if we fail to listen, if we fail to obey, He then what? Chastens us through the consequences of our sin. And do you know what is most tragic about this whole process? I've experienced this, and I bet many of you could say you've experienced this as well. Often, the answer or help we need in a time of crisis is found in a biblical truth that we learned years ago But through neglect, we've now forgotten it. Folks, I see that in believer after believer after believer who comes to me often for counseling. The very answer, the very help they need in the crisis they're facing, they knew at one time. They had discovered it and rejoiced in it. But as a result of neglect, they have now forgotten it. Now, going back to verse 5, it says the Hebrew believers had forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to them as sons. What was the specific exhortation they had forgotten? A truth they knew at one time, but as a result of neglect, they had forgotten now. Well, the answer is found in answering the second question in your sermon notes. What is the motive behind God's discipline? Love. What is God's motive behind disciplining you, behind educating you, taking you through spiritual training, as difficult as it may be? What is His motive when He has to chasten you for wrongdoing? It's love. See, the Hebrew believers had forgotten that behind all of God's disciplinary training is God's unfailing love for His child. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, which is basically a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord, circle it, loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. I love Psalm 89, verses 32 through 33, specific application is the Davidic covenant, but folks, this is true of you and I as believers, because through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God has entered a covenant with you and I. God loves us because Jesus took the wrath that we deserved. He took our punishment, and now we are beloved by the Father. Through Christ, we are one of the family. And you can be guaranteed that nothing can alter His disposition of love towards you. Just like I can tell you, I'm a father of ten children. And there's not a single thing any one of those children could ever do, could ever say, that would stop me from loving them. Yes, they could grieve me, they could pain me, they could anger me, but they will never stop me from loving them. And folks, if I can say that 
with transparency and honesty and integrity, how about a perfect Heavenly Father? Look at Psalm 89, verse 32. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity, iniquity with stripes, but I will not, I will not break off my loving kindness. Folks, sometimes we experience God's corrective discipline. Like King David. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And had her husband Uriah killed. Sometimes we experience God's I'll call it preventive discipline, like the Apostle Paul, who was given a painful thorn in the flesh, not because he was guilty of pride, but the Bible says to keep him from becoming prideful. See, God knows our vulnerabilities. He knows what you're susceptible to. And so often, it's not corrective, it's often there's preventative discipline. He brings hardship on us to fence us in, to keep us close to Him, to keep us from sin. And then sometimes we experience God's discipline not because we are doing poorly. It's just the opposite. He disciplines us because we are doing well spiritually, like Job. I mean, we were told that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning from evil. God brought suffering to Job to bring him to greater heights of spiritual maturity and intimacy with God. To bring him to greater heights of what? Spiritual fitness. Beyond what Job would have ever expected he could have accomplished. So it makes absolutely no difference. It makes no difference whether the discipline is corrective in nature, whether it's a good spanking, or whether it's preventive, or whether it's a spiritual training, it is all motivated out of God's love for His child. See, when we lose sight of God's love like the Hebrew believers did, what happens is we misunderstand God's discipline. See, we fall prey to the lies that Satan whispers in our ears. God loves you and he treats you like this I mean this God that's all loving all powerful this God who could have intervened he could have stopped this he could have prevented this he doesn't love you open your eyes see reality and it's very easy for us to plunge into the depths of disappointment with God. Thinking that God has failed us. That God has let us down. Thinking that God doesn't love us. He's, he must be angry with me. You know, I, I must have done something to terribly upset him. But reality is, just the opposite is true. 
All that disciplinary training is the evidence of God's love. You know, whenever I find myself personally, whenever I find myself discouraged and tempted to God's love, tempted to doubt God's love, I always turn to Romans 8. And would you turn there? Romans 8. And yes, I get discouraged. And yes, there are times when I will begin to question whether God is fair, whether God cares. But I've learned in my life when I detect even the least little inkling of that struggle, I'll come right back here. Now our time is very, very limited. But let me just show you several verses in chapter 8 that I always return to just to encourage me and just to get the right perspective again that yes, God does love me. You're all familiar, of course, with Romans 8, 28 and 29 and we know that God causes what? All things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. That's just a synonym for a believer. A believer is one who loves God, who's been called according to the purpose of God. And the reason all things work together for my good is because God has predestined that I will be what? Conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. And I've shared with you many times from this pulpit, that word predestined, prohorizo, it not only means a predetermined outcome, that when you placed your faith in Jesus, it has nothing to do with unbelievers. Only believers are predestined, and believers are predestined to become conformed to the image of of His Son. And so what this is saying is, God has, when I placed my faith in Jesus, for me it was September 20th, 1970, just a few days ago, I was sharing my testimony with an individual, how I came to know Christ on September 20th, 1970. Well, when I came to know Christ on that particular God, God predetermined that the outcome of my faith would be that I would be made like Jesus. And I began that process, began going through his disciplinary training to affect that in my life. And that process will not become complete until I see Jesus face to face. And when I'm changed to be pure, even as he is pure. But that word pro also means to place limitations on something. It's where we get the word horizon. It talks about a boundary. It's where we get this whole concept of a hedge of protection. And what this verse, these two verses are saying, God loves Andy Merritt so much that he has put a hedge of protection around me and he has given me a promise that he's, he's not going to let anything touch my life unless he knows he can use it to accomplish his purposes for my good to make me more like Jesus. And that's true of every believer. He's put a limitation on your life. He's put a boundary on your life. Satan can only get through that by God's permission. Adversity can only get through that by God's permission. Tragedy can only get through that. Difficulty, pain, whatever you put, it can only get through that by God's permission. And if God permits it, it's because he knows he can ultimately use it in your spiritual training, in your disciplinary training, to make you spiritually fit, to make you more like Jesus. So I return to that, to remind myself, hey, hey, God's in control. I may not understand rhyme or reason right now, but I don't need to. 
All I need to do is fix my eyes on Jesus and follow him, knowing he's going to bring me through. And then look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Those all things that we encounter. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son. Don't miss this. He who did not spare his own son. God gave his best for you. He delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So I go that and I realize God is not only causing all things to work for my good, but there's absolutely nothing I need that God is going to withhold from me. He's going to provide the strength. He's going to provide the grace that I need because he's a loving God, a loving father. And he cares for his child. And then, if you need more, look at 35, verse 30. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. That's persecution. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. But notice the word again. In all these things. But in all these things we overwhelmingly what? Conquer. Conquer how? Through him who loved us. Why? Because I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen and amen. And I can honestly say, as God is my witness, there's not been a single time of discouragement in my life where I didn't get alone with God, open up the pages to Romans 8, and when I got up, I was a transformed individual in terms of attitude and perspective. Now look at that little asterisk under that uh, second point. Knowing God loves me keeps me from the two opposite pitfalls in relating to God's discipline. One is disdain. It says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And the other is dismay, nor faint when you are approved by Him. See, as long as I know God loves me, then that's going to keep me from disdain, which is what? Resisting God's discipline. Trying to defy God's discipline. Not submitting to God's discipline. To learn the lesson that He has for me. And then the other is dismay. Just becoming overwhelmed with discouragement, despair. Oh, God doesn't love me. Oh, why is God angry with me? So as we close... Have you forgotten the exhortation that God disciplines those he loves? Would you have to admit this morning that you have fallen into disdain or dismay? That you've been resisting God's disciplinary training? Or you've just become overwhelmed in discouragement? and disappointment and this morning you just need to get back to the father who loves you come out of your discouragement stop resisting and say God I trust you I may not understand it all right now 
but I trust you. I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. And right now, I'm going to give you just absolute freedom in my life to do whatever you need to do as my spiritual coach to bring me to a place of spiritual fitness. We all know the apostles' faith that rejoiced because they are worthy to suffer shame for Jesus Christ. And you know, parents, let me just say a word to you parents and grandparents. I've heard so many believers, in light of what we're facing right now in America, express fear for their children and their grandchildren. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that comment. And I understand that. I feel the same thing. I experience the same thing. But how are we going to respond to that? I'll tell you how we need to respond to that. It is going to get worse. Persecution is going to get, is going to increase. It is time for us as parents and grandparents to teach our children to stand alone for Jesus Christ and be a light for Him. And it starts by us being what? An example worth following. So don't crash into fear and discouragement. Realize, no matter what comes, it's God's disciplinary training. He's doing it out of love for His church that has become pampered and weak in the United States of America. We have to admit that. I have become weak and pampered. I need disciplinary training. I need adversity to make me more spiritual fit, to strengthen my faith, to give me the faith of the apostles. We all need that. And God knows that. And God is in control. He's still sitting on the throne. So as the invitation is extended, you just respond to how God has spoken. If you're here and you don't know God's love, if you're not one of His children, you can become His child today. And who would not want to know a God that loves like this, that is totally committed to your good and to your benefit, in your welfare. So I'd invite you to make your heart Christ's home, to invite Him in as you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner, that you've failed to submit to God, and this morning that you would put your faith in a Jesus who died for you and rose again to be your Lord. As you would place your faith in Him and submit to Him. And I'll be standing here to greet anyone that has a decision of any public nature, public profession of faith, Someone who wants to, desires to unite with the church, be part of this church family, it would be our desire to have that. So uh, you stand as the invitation is extended, and you just be obedient to how God has been speaking to your heart.